and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Lara Corrigan. Welcome to Think Health. Today... First of all, they're non-toxic, but most importantly, they're very bright and they last forever, like diamond. So for as long as the, the drug is in the body, the diamond that is attached to it is able to follow the drug. Nano diamonds provide a non-toxic and surprisingly cheap alternative to radioactive materials for looking inside our bodies. And... This is the sound of my heartbeat. It's being sampled through a new art installation at the UTS galleries that combines music and biology. And I'm interested in how we can use this technology to focus inwards. So it's a kind of assisted meditation or a meditation for people who don't meditate. But first... Have you ever had a prescription and not finished the full course? Yes, and those were antibiotics. I don't remember the name, but I definitely haven't finished a course of antibiotics before. I was feeling much better, so I just thought I didn't have to take the antibiotics um, anymore. And then I got sick again two weeks later, so lesson learnt. <laughs> uh, I've only done that once, but I usually finish the whole script. And why did you not do it that one time? Uh, I sort of like lost the packet. I couldn't find it, but... Um... I know it's bad because I actually do biomedical science, so um, I know it's bad. Uh, not really, because my mom is a doctor and she always advised me of what to do. <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, it was antibacterial uh, medication for an infection on my, on my wrist I had, and I stopped taking it after it was gone, even though the doctor said to keep going. Probably just out of laziness, mostly. Have you ever forgotten to take your pills or felt better and decided you didn't need to continue your course? Don't worry, you're not alone. I know I'm certainly guilty of it. In fact, 50% of Australians with chronic conditions don't take their pills as prescribed. It's an issue that causes over 100,000 preventable deaths per year. Uh, my name is Elisa Witek and I'm a PhD candidate. So Elisa, yeah? I say... Elissa. How do you want me to say? Alyssa, if that's easier for you. You, you can be picky. I, my name's Laura and it's <laughs> yeah. just like Laura. It's spelled Laura, right? Elissa's <laughs> thesis at the University of Technology, Sydney, focuses on how to improve medication adherence. That means listening to your doctor and taking all your drugs. And even she's no model patient. I'm actually terrible at it. I've been prescribed antibiotics twice in the past year and both times I've completely forgot. It was normally I had to take them after lunch and I would get so distracted in conversation at lunch that it just slips my mind and four hours later, oh shoot, I forgot to take my pill. Why do you think we struggle so much to take our medication? <laughs> well, that's a very complex question because human behavior is complex. In the literature, there's found to be 771 different reasons for why people don't take their medications correctly. These can vary from anything simple as just forgetting to take it or something more complicated like not having access to a healthcare system or a pharmacy. If you don't take your prescription properly, 
you're 20% more likely to end up in hospital. And for people with chronic diseases like diabetes, your risk of hospitalization doubles. Depending on the disease state, it's obviously going to change based on that. But something as severe as cardiovascular heart failure, if you're not taking your drugs for that, it, you can literally die. But based on severity, it can cause just you not feeling well. Medication non-adherence is also unhealthy for our healthcare system. It's a huge financial burden. Exactly how much it's costing us is the focus of Rochelle Cutler's thesis. I'm Rochelle Cutler. I'm a PhD student in the Graduate School of Health. Rochelle says current estimates aren't based on a standard model. That's what she's trying to develop. In Australia, it's estimated that non-adherence costs about $7 billion per annum. In the US, it's estimated between 100 to $290 billion. The difficulty with these figures are that they're just estimations and they haven't actually truly been quantified as such. But it's clear that it's costing us a lot. And so the costs relate to the increased spending where they end up in hospital. So maybe they'll end up in hospital because they end up having a heart attack or a stroke. Or maybe they're going to the GP more often because they're actually getting more sick and their disease is progressing. Or also if they then end up in hospital, it could mean that they need to be put on five extra medications potentially because their disease has gotten worse. This is why Elisa thinks it's in everyone's best interest to do something about non-adherence. For people who are just forgetful, special packaging or pillboxes, alarms or reminders can be a good solution. But Elisa says intentional offenders are more difficult to convert. This is something that gets more complicated because you have to actually change human behaviour and you have to motivate a patient to want to change. So it's something similar to like alcoholism or smoking cessation where the patient has to want to make that change or otherwise it's not going to have any effect. So there are techniques like this called motivational interviewing or um, cognitive behavioural therapy. What Elissa proposes in her thesis is to train up pharmacists to have short, empathetic conversations with patients about the importance of finishing the full course of their prescriptions. She says pharmacists are an underutilised resource because they are a major point of contact for patients. So normally if it's a new drug, you should have a counselling session as is but this maybe would add a minute or two onto the counselling session to just make sure that you understand the importance and to see if you have any concerns about it. What we would do in an ideal world would be target uh, non-adherent patients. So you can actually see, based on a patient's dispensing history, if they pick up their repeats on time. So if they're you know missing a month, obviously they're not taking their drugs every day as prescribed. You would target those patients to have maybe a longer discussion with them to see what concerns and issues they're having, what difficulties, if you can find a solution for them. She says evidence shows interaction with patients leads to better medication adherence. Patients, you know, have concerns and questions that they won't bring up unless a pharmacist questions them on it. A lot of patients are afraid of side effects or they don't understand why their medication works or what the importance of it is, and it's a pharmacist's job to tell them that. And I think just a simple conversation can really convince a patient to want to take their drugs, to see the importance of it, to want to live longer, to see a family member grow, something like this. The costs of training pharmacists and paying for their extra time could put off policymakers. But since medication non-adherence costs an estimated $7 billion, it does seem worth it. 
especially because it's our health and not just our hip pocket that's at risk. Elissa Witsek and Rochelle Cutler are PhD graduates at the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Elissa will be competing in the three-minute thesis finals on August 29 after winning her faculty competition. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. There's a lot of evidence around how music affects our bodies and souls. But have you ever thought about how your body and soul can affect music? George Kutz's installation at the UTS Galleries applies biofeedback techniques that listen to your heartbeat and use it to make unique soundscapes. The music ebbs and flows with your pulse, and then it uses the data collected to influence your heartbeat in a type of assisted meditation. The concept has medical applications in reducing stress and anxiety. I gave it a go. This is a pulse oximeter. It's the kind you use in hospital. And we've adapted this. It comes with a very specialised circuit that um, analyses the amount of light being absorbed and reflected in your finger. And that changes every time your blood whooshes through the tip of your finger. Will it hurt? It won't hurt at all. So there's, there's no nasty surprises in this artwork. Okay. So just put that on your finger and rest that down on the table. Great. So now we're going to start hearing... And uh, the sound of your heartbeat. That's it. And we're listening to a soundscape that I've designed with Gail Priest. So usually in the gallery, people are hearing this through headphones. It's a very private, intimate experience. And I've got two headphones so you can listen with your friend. But essentially you're exploring this state inside your body and um, some feelings and how they can um, shift the sounds. You mentioned you were working with a soundscape, so this isn't just the sound of my heartbeat? Not at all, no. So we're just getting data from changes in your heart rate as it's increasing and decreasing. And we're using those, that data, those increases and decreases, to modulate soundscapes, so the, the frequencies of the sounds and, and mixing between different um, samples. So it's like a big mixing desk that's being controlled by data about changes in your heart rhythm. Okay. Hmm. So is my heart going fast or slow? Yes, we can hear it beating there. It's quite slow by the sounds of it, and it's got a, quite a lot of vari- variation we can hear in that beat. We're analysing the last 127 heartbeats, and every time there's a heartbeat, we kind of move that forward along. So looking backwards in time for these changes. So it's a very slow interaction. And if we go up here, we can, we'll start to see some patterns soon. We're measuring... I want to see here. Yeah, so in a moment, when it's got 127 beats, we'll start to see these patterns. And these patterns 
uh, are what is going to be controlling the sound. So um, scientifically, we're doing a um, spectrum analysis of changes in uh, heart rate. Um, and we're looking for what's called a resonance, where instead of being a complicated waveform, it becomes very simple, a simple waveform, like, like um, going up and down very rhythmically and that's usually in time of your breathing so we find in many forms of meditation breath normally falls down to around six breaths per minute i am finding that this is kind of making me think a lot more about my breath mm. and like actively like is it going too fast is it going yeah, too slow yeah. i think that's that's a really interesting phenomena with technology and, and medical technologies in particular we're used to being kind of judged and assessed and I think that's a challenge for artists working with this technology around how to f- how to support people to have other ways of experiencing that technology so this is really not so much about being diagnosed but just to experience your body and to explore your body not in such a, a medicalized way. What we're seeing on the screen here we can see these patterns and there's these bands of um, activity and this is a very low frequency changes uh, low frequency and high frequency and what we're going to do is see if we can shift that towards low frequency so what I want to just check is does that mean affecting my actual heartbeat yeah you're going to influence your heart rate with these changes Um, so the sound the sound is based off my heartbeat but then mm. the sound can also be used to change my heartbeat yeah yeah exactly crazy yes it's a feedback loop so let's just see if we can um, I want to bring these other sounds in is that like a a digital sampler or something that you're using there yeah I put my own samplers in here the sounds like we're wearing the sounds on changes in our nervous system um, and I was interested with Gail to experiment with quite dark, almost abrasive, edgy colours, but wearing them on a relaxed state. And so what is it like to feel, these, feel through these sounds in this state? And now exhale for me again, just blowing out through your lips. So the sounds are swelling and rising and falling gently with your inhalation and exhalation. And as your breathing slows down, that rise and fall changes in the heart rate becomes more pronounced. So if I breathe quickly, it should speed up? Uh, yeah, but it's what we're trying to explore is not so much whether it's fast or slow, but this very specific quality of, of um, this. When you're imagining this feeling of uh, compassion or warmth and connection and combining that with the slow breathing, it produces what we call a, a resonance in the heart rate. So that can take a while to find. See how we go. Which time you exhale, you're going to hear one of those little, a little musical note. So just try that again. So it is not only picking up on my heartbeat but also my breath the breath will influence the heart rate that's the really interesting thing that's quite beautiful about this interaction so our breathing alters our heart rate when we breathe in it releases the break on our heart rate and our heart rate speeds up a little bit and as we breathe out it's putting a bit of pressure on the vagus nerve which is like the break on your heart rate and so 
that slows it down and that's the main way we're manipulating the work in addition to um, letting these emotional states enter into us or, or kind of eliciting these, these states of connection. What I can do is if I pause this and I'll just switch over to a pre-recording state that I've measured before and I can play you these changes, yeah? Give it to me straight, Doc. <laughs> Am I too stressed or too calm? I think it's just a bit tricky in this situation with the interview for you to kind of enter into this space, but hopefully when you go back into the gallery later on, you'll have that opportunity. I do feel like I'm the one being interviewed right yes, now. Like it. a lie detector. <laughs> Okay, so what we're loading up now is a recording of someone doing some meditation. And we're listening to changes in their heart rate and how that's being influenced by their meditative state and by their breathing. So, and as we get closer into this meditative state, we start to hear... Chimes? Yeah, that's it. So there's... I invited Gail and um, James to create these kind of contrasting sonic states and as you shift towards this quiet space we kind of morph towards this um, gentler space. So as they're becoming in, entering into this state of what we call uh, resonance or coherence in the heart rate pattern these changes are coming through. So let's just look up at that graph there again and it's all around that peak there. So how do you describe being in that zone? I've written some very simple plain instructions on the tables where people sit and I'm inviting them to imagine or experiment with feeling uh, memories or sensations of um, love, warmth and compassion and the image of breathing light seems to be very effective. If we imagine breathing in this feeling of love or compassion and breathing out this feeling, it seems to produce in us this, this um, very easy quality of breathing and this particular pattern in heart rate changes. What kind of applications does your work, this kind of work, have in, in health? The mathematics and the science of this has been used in clinical practice in psychology to teach people relaxation skills. There are some popular apps that you can use on iPhones with special sensors that use the same principles um, and they've used it for things like post-traumatic stress disorder, um, ADHD, all sorts of things where you need to kind of um, train your ability to shift your focus in, way, in special specific ways. But for me, I'm really interested in, at a much more cultural level, around how we imagine you know, who we can be, how we feel, how we relate to our sense of embodiment, and what it means when we build you know, art and culture around these specialised ways of being. Hmm. So why did you think it was important to create this exhibit? I'm really interested in how we can use technologies in a contemplative way. So not just as distraction, but a way as of focusing and, and just exploring the different things we can focus on. So it ten, tends to be very externally oriented with a lot of uh, technology. 
and I'm interested in how we can use this technology to focus inwards. So it's a kind of assisted meditation or a meditation for people who don't meditate in some ways and that's been a real core of a lot of my work over the past 15 years is creating these spaces where people can pay attention to changes happening inside themselves through the sounds and the visuals I create that are being changed by those changes in our body. And how does the sound affect our heart rate and our breath, like you said? I've always been interested in in traditional art, how traditional art influences us at that level as well. So we can look at lots of uh, religious paintings and they have a certain sort of symmetry to them and a certain order, but especially in music and performing arts, uh, many forms of devotional practice like singing and chanting, they all have a kind of rhythm to them that is often has this six breaths per minute kind of 10 second, which is naturally bringing out this slower rate of breathing and all the, the benefits that can come from when you enter into that kind of rhythm. And what are the benefits that can come from entering into that rhythm? What's happening in this particular form of biofeedback is it's giving your heart and breath system a kind of a workout in terms of um, how the blood pressure and the heart rate is changing. But the main benefits that I'm interested in is our ability to learn to influence and compare and contrast um, different states of nervous arousal from stress and anxiety and excitement to relaxation And so if you can learn to voluntarily manipulate those states, to be relaxed and then say, now I'm going to intentionally shift towards a more aroused or excited or stressed state and then shift it back, you're getting some insights in how how to regulate the quality of your attention. I never say it's good to always be relaxed. It's, It's always about a choice about what's appropriate. And this work is really about a very kind of subtle exploration of what it means when we have that choice what that opens up for us. George Coote, artist and interaction designer and lecturer at the University of New South Wales. George's installation, Metamatics, is part of the Sounding the Future exhibition at the University of Technology Sydney Galleries. You can hear more about the exhibition on this week's Think Digital Futures online at 2SER.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The exhibition runs until September 22. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. If a doctor wants to trace the journey of a drug or other microscopic molecules in your body, they have to open you up or use radioactive materials. Using radioactive material for what's known as bioimaging is toxic to the patient, dangerous to handle, and doesn't last very long. So researchers at the University of Technology Sydney are experimenting with the use of diamonds instead. Nanodiamonds provide a non-toxic alternative, and diamonds are forever. Carlo Braddock is a research fellow at the University of Technology Sydney. We start with the raw powder, which is this powder of nanodiamonds that we get, and there are several suppliers, mainly from Russia and China. Then we do several chemical cleanings, which I call sort of bucket chemistry. You put these diamonds in a different solution, mainly acids, because uh, the stable form of carbon at room temperature is graphite. So the surface of these diamonds tend to be graphitized. So if you look at this powder, it looks almost uh, blackish or grayish, a bit like old school pencil. Uh, 
Um, so we have to clean that to make this nice and clean on the surface. Uh, when I say clean, I also mean that we can functionalize this surface. We can attach antibodies, proteins, uh, so that our uh, diamonds are now reactive, which whatever drug or tissue we want it to uh, attach to. And then it gets, for example, in an animal model, in a mouse, it would be injected under the skin, intramuscular, it would get injected through a vein, the tail vein that the, the mouse have. And then the drug goes and does whatever it needs to do. And because it is attached to the diamond, we know where, where it is going. So it's uh, the normal bodily process that basically brings the diamond where it has to go. And how do you see it? Is it like a bright light shined on the animal? So the imaging is all optical. We basically shine laser light in a standard epifluorescent microscope. Uh, Let's say if you're talking about a mouse, the mouse gets anesthetized. It gets put into this uh, microscope machine that scans the mouse, and the signal that's coming out is completely optical, so we detect it again optically with just the photodetector, and we can see where the diamonds are gone, if they're localized in the liver, in the muscle where they're supposed to be going, or wherever they go. This is one approach. One of the limitations of this approach is how deep you can go within the skin, which is at the moment limited to just a few millimeters simply because light doesn't penetrate as much. But there are other techniques. One that we are investigating is uh, photoacoustic in which uh, we basically use uh, other physical methods to get the signal out of this diamond, and that one goes a little bit deeper in the animal, but it's not as immediate because it needs a little bit of post-processing to extract the actual information. These aren't the only types of traces in the medical industry. What makes using diamonds better? So in the medical industry, the two main ways of doing this type of uh, studies is uh, biopsies, where you basically cut open the the animal. But the problem with those is that they're not really reliable because you have to do a lot of tests, and then you have to decide which part of the animal to look at to to say, okay, the drug is gone where it should or where it shouldn't. The the second approach, which is uh, better, is doing live imaging, which is what we're focusing on. And right now, live imaging, for the most part, is made with uh, radioactive probes that get injected into the animal. And of course, these uh, have a couple of drawbacks. First of all, they are toxic. Uh, But second of all, their signal doesn't last very long. So you can't really follow the drug, what the drug is doing in the body for more than a few hours. Nanodiamonds sort of overcome that problem because, first of all, they are non-toxic. But most importantly, they are very bright and they last forever, like diamond. So for as long as the the drug is in the body, the diamond that is attached to it is able to follow the drug for uh, days, weeks, or even months until the drug gets expelled by the body and the diamond with it. It does sound like an expensive procedure. How does it compare to the radioactive imaging? So it's actually relatively quite cheap for several reasons. First of all, the material is very easy to produce. We tend to use what is called detonation on the diamonds, where you have uh, Trinito Toluene, which is the, the TNT that you see in a Willy Coyote cartoon. You basically get the reaction, that explosion going in a very small chamber, and for a very, very short amount of time, you have the right conditions of temperature and pressure for the carbon naturally existing in the, in the explosive to form diamonds that are quite small, 5 to 7 nanometer, which is uh, basically 10,000 times smaller than the width of one of your hair. 
So the process, as you can imagine, is not very expensive. So you can, on top of my head, one gram of these diamonds is about $50, which is quite cheap considering that we use way, way lower concentration than that. But I think the most important thing in terms of price is that uh, these diamonds, you can keep them on the shelf. You don't need to refrigerate them. And if you think about radioactive isotopes, there is a lot of cost in terms of handling, delivery, getting into the country that, of course, increase the price of the product, which instead we don't have. So diamonds in that sense are, are better. And what kind of applications does this have then? So we're thinking at the moment to use it in the very early stages of drug development, as I say, to help, for example, an animal model to follow what the drug is doing to make sure that it's safe uh, and uh, the, the drug is, is effective. And uh, right now we are focusing into the stem cell industry, one of the fastest growing industry in the medical sector. The idea would be to use these uh, diamonds as traces into the stem cells to when they, they spread and they develop, we can track them around and see, oh, okay, so uh, we want to grow this particular tissue and it has grown as expected or actually part of these stem cells have gone somewhere else in the body and they start growing a tumor. How far along are you with using these on humans? You've talked about animals a lot. What's the next step? We're still focusing on trying to maintain this into the preclinical trial, so just the animal models, because, um, of course, as you go down the line, you have to have more safety approvals. And right now, as I was saying earlier, I was mentioning earlier, we're working with the stem cells. One project that I'm particularly excited about we are, uh, is trying to develop in growing the crystalline, which is the lens in your eyes, because uh, some kids are born with a congenital condition and their crystalline, their lens, is opaque. And so it's trying to grow one with stem cells from people that uh, have a normal crystalline and hopefully be able then to implant into these patients. And what he wants to make sure is that these uh, cells are growing, these stems are growing into the actual lens, so they specify as the proper cells, and wants to make sure that these cells don't go rogue somewhere else. So that's how far we are in the development of the technology, testing and validating it. Carlo Braddock, Research Fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. I'm Lara Corrigan. See you next time. Music